0: You know, today we're going to continue our Advent uh, celebration with a sermon series entitled, Unto Us, a Child is Born. And you know those are words out of Isaiah chapter 9, which is where we're going to be today. Uh, but this idea of the birth of a child, you know, the birth specifically of Jesus Christ. And there are a few things in human existence, I think, that create more joy, more anticipation, more planning, uh, sometimes more heartache uh, than the birth of a child. And if you're a parent or have ever been an expecting parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you're somebody who wishes they could be a parent and for whatever reason that has never happened, then you know even more what I'm talking about. The longing for a child to be born. You know, Isaiah chapter 9 speaks about this type of expectation, the anticipation of a child's birth. And, you know, every, every child is significant. But the child that is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, who is Jesus Christ the Lord, that we find out later, is not like any other child. He is like no other child that has ever been born. And it's like, in fact, as we read Isaiah 9, it's like the entire world has been holding its breath in anticipation since the creation for this child to be born. And we're going to see exactly what that looks like. And, and as we see, uh, as the words of the song that we just sang a little while ago, uh, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the birth of Jesus. All the hopes, the fears, the anxieties, the longings that people, and especially God's people have experienced for so many years, are met in Jesus Christ. So during the, the season of Advent, We like to recapture that anticipation, to remember the longing that uh, God's people had for so long for the first coming of Christ. And we share that longing as we wait for his second coming as well. But over the next few weeks, we're going to camp out here in Isaiah chapter 9 uh, in these couple of verses. And we're going to also look over how the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth kind of relate to what is predicted here in Isaiah 9. And I hope it's a just encouraging time for you, a time that really gives you a renewed sense of longing, a renewed sense of a desire to have a strong relationship with Jesus Christ, this amazing baby who was born. Because you see, the birth of Christ, the birth of Jesus, changes everything. Unto us a child is born, and we're going to celebrate that this morning. So uh, follow along on the screens as I read uh, from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. It says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations." For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. I love those verses. I think they give us so many pictures of what is happening at the birth of Christ. And not only what happens at the moment of Christ's birth, but what continues to happen every day following that uh, for the rest of eternity. You know, it might be interesting to think about why are we in the Old Testament as we are talking about the coming of Jesus, who's in the New Testament. But I think there's no better way to start than by looking in the Old Testament, which uh, the book of Isaiah was actually written some 600 years before the birth of Christ. He was predicting these things 600 years before Christ was born. And I think it's absolutely essential to begin here so that we can begin to see uh, and more fully understand who Christ is and why he had to come. Another song we sang this morning, what child is this? That's what I want us to ask over these next three weeks is what child is this that God sent to redeem us? This child that has been born to us. And so Christ came, I believe, to solve a problem. And we're going to see over the next few weeks, and especially today, what that problem was and how Christ alone is the one who can solve it. So we'll look more closely here at Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll see exactly what we're talking about. And the first thing I think that you see when you open up to the chapter, in fact, you may have thought this when I read the first couple of words of those verses, is what in the world are we talking about? (laughs) And and what we begin with in Isaiah chapter 9 is really a, a problem, the problem, and that is darkness. Uh, the problem we see in the book of Isaiah is darkness. And what are we talking about? Uh, What's what wrong? Why would we call darkness a problem? Well, see, here's one thing I think as I thought about this this week. I don't think human beings were created to just be in darkness, right? We're in this room. We have lights on. How many of you in the last month have tried to get up in the dark and, you know, maybe go get a drink and you stubbed your toe on something? A lot of us. Okay, I've done that many times. Um, Darkness is not what we were created for. That's why we have lights. That's why we have candles. Uh, Ever since the dawn of time, humans have needed light. And so this idea of darkness is not just a physical problem, though. What we're going to see this morning is that there's a much deeper darkness that God's people were struggling with in the book of Isaiah. Um, And so uh, this idea of darkness, um, what we have happening, I think, in in Isaiah is we really have to go back to chapter 8 a little bit. Chapter 8 a little bit, because if you start there in verse 9, it says there will be no more gloom for who, her who was in English. Um, in other words, the gloom is gone. Well, what gloom, what darkness are we talking about? So if we rewind two verses back into chapter 8, uh, chapter 8 of Isaiah, verses 21 and 22, listen to this. This is talking about God's people. He says, this is what's going to happen to you because you've ceased to follow me. He's, God says to them, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged against, enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they will turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And then we get to chapter 9 where it talks about the solution to this darkness. But what is this darkness he's talking about? Uh, it's just a picture, I believe, that God is telling the people that you are stumbling around in darkness right now. And I think there's just a couple of different uh, types of darkness we see here in Isaiah. And, and the question is, what does this darkness look like in Isaiah? And then we're going to ask in a minute, what does the darkness look like in our time today? But to start with, what does it look like in Isaiah chapter 9? Uh, really chapters 1 through 12 of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah's going back and forth. He's saying, people, I'm a prophet. You have messed up. You are stumbling away in darkness. Now return to the Lord and he will save you. So he goes back and forth saying, stop sinning. Come to the Lord. He will help you. Stop sinning. God's going to send judgment or come back to him. And he goes back and forth, back and forth between judgment and promises of restoration. And what we have here at the end of chapter 8 is he's saying it's hopeless. You all are in complete darkness. There's no hope for you because of what you're doing. And they understood exactly what he said, because when it talks about them stumbling around in the darkness, what we're first of all talking about is political darkness, okay? This is really important to understand. The historical situation at the time of Isaiah was that you had um, uh, the nation of Israel, which was actually divided into north and south, two parts, okay? North and south. They had a civil war, and they stayed separated, okay? Here in the United States, we had a civil war between the north and the south, but they ended up staying united. Well, not so in Israel. They had a civil war and they were separated. So there was a north and a south. Um, Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. Okay. The northern kingdom is an enemy of the southern kingdom. So what's happening here is these two countries for about 200 years did not get along with each other. And to make matters worse, just like today in the world, there are big superpowers who beat up on the, on the smaller countries. And uh, the big bad wolf, the big bad wolf in A.D. 800 to 600, in about these 200 years, was the country, the nation of Assyria. And I read through some of... Uh, 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 of the writings from Assyria, so they would actually record. That, let me just tell you a little bit about this nation. Okay, the nation of Assyria would write down the records of how they conquered peoples, and they bragged. They were the thing they were the most proud of were two things really: how much money they took from all the other nations, and also how cruel they were to the other nations. They did just absolutely brutal things uh, to make their point: to say, "We're the boss; you're not. Give us your money." Um, and so it was a, It was kind of a scary time to be alive. You could have a country like Israel, like Judah, and, uh, and, and suddenly a giant country from the north would sweep in and say, we're going to haul you all away as slaves, and they could do it. And so it was an interesting time politically. And guess what? These kings in Israel, oftentimes they would say, okay, Assyria is threatening. They're kind of knocking on the door. They're threatening us. What should I do? And God said, come to me. I'll save you. But the kings of Israel would say, ah, no, that doesn't. I don't think that's going to work. I'm going to go over here to Egypt. I'm going to hire Egypt, and they're going to come and protect me. Guess what? That didn't work. Or another time, uh, they said, we're going to hire Syria, which was actually a country in between Assyria and Israel. And guess what? That didn't work. Uh, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 7, you find the whole account of how King Ahaz, who is one of the great, great, great grandsons of King David, um, God came to him and said, you're facing a threat. Turn to me. And Ahaz says, eh, no, I don't think so. In fact, I'm going to turn to, at this point, he actually says, I'm going to turn to the nation of Assyria, the big bad wolf, to protect me from all the other nations. And he pays them an incredible amount of money. You can read about this uh, in First and Second Kings. Um, all that to say, there's a lot of turmoil going on here. A lot of turmoil going on. And, and, and basically, God says, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust Egypt? Are you going to trust me? Or are you going to trust Assyria to save you from these problems? And the problems were real. Again, everybody knew what the Assyrians were doing. And believe me, you would you would shake in your boots if you knew what they were going to come and do to you. Uh, so what's going on here? It's It's really this question that God has put before his people. Who are you going to trust? And unfortunately, the kings of Israel, almost all of them, said, We're going to trust the nations. We're going to trust Egypt to come and save us. We're going to trust the Assyrians to protect us from the other aggressors. And so there was this political darkness that was happening. But as you can tell, as we talk about this, I think that political darkness, the the bondage that they were being threatened with, uh, is actually just a symptom of a greater darkness. And that was a spiritual darkness. God says, you're wandering around, bumping into other nations, trying to find somebody who can protect you, uh, But the bigger problem is that you're not turning to me. Because remember, God had a very special relationship with His people. He delivered them from Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth, and protected them. And He says, I can do that again. Why won't you trust me? Because what happened here is what we see in the first 12 chapters of Isaiah is that God's people rebelled against Him. They said, we're going to pursue other things. And what did they do? What did the rebellion look like? Sometimes, uh, you'll see later in the book of Isaiah, they were actually making idols, worshiping false gods, saying, you know, we like Yahweh, our God, but what if we added Yahweh plus another God, and then another God? And they started adding in all these other things, and they said, we're going to... And God said, uh uh-uh, you don't understand. I'm not just one of many gods. I am the one true God. And so they were rebelling against him by worshiping other gods. They were rebelling against him by trusting in other people. Remember these other nations, uh, they were, they were turning to them and saying, maybe Egypt can save me. Maybe Assyria will save me. And God said, look at who you're partnering with. These are not good people and they're not God. But the other thing I think that really is at the root of their rebellion. And this is something that we share in common with them is that not only were they trusting other idols, trusting other people, but the biggest thing is I think they trusted in themselves. They said, we can figure this out on our own. We don't need God's help. And they really turned their back on him. And so God says, you all are stumbling around in darkness. The result of this, uh, that last verse we said in verse eight, chapter 8, verse 22, and they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. How many more ways can you say it's hopeless? that you can think of. God says, it's hopeless. You all are wandering around. You are stuck in darkness because you have turned away from me. They are stuck in darkness. Well, I wonder when we think about our day and time today, I think humans, uh, you know, the times change, but humans don't change that much. And so I would say to you, what does the darkness look like today in 2019? What kind of darkness do we experience in our world today? And I think some of, I really would say there's probably three kinds of darkness that we experience as individuals um, and that we have to learn how to walk through and, and get through. And one would be this uh, self-imposed darkness, right? Uh, this would be darkness or difficulty that you experience because of choices that you made yourself. So that's probably the first kind of darkness we experience or the first kind of difficulty. You make choices and you have to sometimes experience the consequences of those choices. Some of the people in Israel were doing that. They were making choices to turn away from God, and they experienced those consequences. So we have self-imposed darkness. But then I think there's also this thing that we could call second-hand darkness, right? Difficulty and difficult things that you experience because of choices that people around you made. And you had nothing to do with it, probably. Uh, things like... Um, you know, I think sometimes if you have, let's say you lived in a situation that was politically unstable, and we could say maybe the whole world is like that, right? Sometimes people like to throw a fit about how crazy things are in politics and internationally right now. I don't think it even compares to what was going on sometimes in, in, in the Old Testament times. Uh, or actually, I think just times never change. Things are always uncertain. So political darkness, sometimes people get swept up in there, and you're stuck in some difficult situation, maybe a dangerous situation, because of the choices that politicians have made, right? So we still have political darkness. Um, that's another thing that would be a second-hand thing. Sometimes uh, a marriage breaks down because of the choices of one of the partners in that marriage uh, one of the spouses and so that could be second hand it might be due to the choice of your husband or your wife that that something like that happens sometimes you experience difficulty in a business or in your place of employment not because you did anything wrong but because someone else in your in your workplace did whether it's financial or sometimes even physical abuse sometimes we experience darkness and gloom because of the choices of others. And yet, what is the solution for that? What is the solution for that? So some darkness is self-imposed. Some is secondhand that you breathe in just because you're around other people. But I would also say some darkness is just situational darkness. It's just the situation that we live in uh, because we live in a broken world. And things that fall into this category would be things like sickness, illness, um, uh, I have a good friend uh, back uh, in Birmingham who's my age uh, who's struggling with cancer. And that's not because he chose anything or anyone else chose anything. It's just part of being in a broken world with sickness and disease. Uh, death, infertility, all these things that, you know, it's, things are not the way they should be. And God says sometimes we live in darkness just because we're in a broken world. And so the question for us, I think, is the same that Isaiah asks the people in Isaiah chapter 9, is if you're experiencing any kind of darkness or difficulty or, uh, troubling situation, who are you gonna trust? Who are you gonna trust in this situation? Are you gonna trust yourself? Are you gonna trust others? Or, as he invites us, are you gonna trust God? Are you going to trust God? Because the thing is that we see here in Isaiah 9 is the problem is darkness and those different kinds of darkness that you can find yourself in or that the world finds itself in. But guess what? God has given us a solution. And the words of Isaiah chapter 9 are so beautiful that in the midst of all that darkness, we have the solution. And it is very simple. It's a child. A child is promised to be born. I love these verses, verses 2 through 6. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Did you notice those are past tense verses? It's talking about it like it already happened uh, because that's the nature of of God's uh, word and God's prophecy. When God speaks it, it's as good as done. And so what we see here in these verses is Isaiah saying, God has promised to set you free, to bring you out of darkness and into light. Well, how is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? What does that look like? I think what we see in verses 2 through 6 is really a new situation. They were in darkness, but now they're going to be in light in a new situation, which is really deliverance from the problems they have. Now, again, remember the big thing at everybody's mind, they're thinking the darkness we're in right now is political. We are stuck in a bad situation. We're about to be swallowed up by these brutal people, these brutal people that just want to come in and destroy us. And God says, that darkness is not too much for me. I can save you from that. But he says that in the future, this child is going to be born. And he's not just going to set you free from political darkness. He'll set you free from the spiritual darkness that we all struggle with. I love this this imagery of light. First, we talked about darkness, but now we see this picture of light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Have you noticed in the Christmas story how many times light comes up? Uh, Multiple times. But if if flip over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter two, Matthew chapter two, this is the account of the the coming of the wise men. And so here we are in Matthew at the The Old Testament has ended, the New Testament has become, and here is the birth of this promised child. And look at what happens in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. How beautiful is that? God promised that the the darkness was going to become light. And one of the signs he gave to these wise men is a star shining in the darkness to lead them to this child. The light leads them to this child. Well, those wise men ended up speaking to King Herod. And uh, if we skip ahead a few verses um, to verse 9, it says, After listening to the king... Matthew 2, verse 9, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. But again, they rejoiced greatly when they saw this light in the night sky. And guess what? It's more than just symbolic. It led them to the one true light. John chapter 1 picks up on these. I'll just read these verses. You don't have to turn there. Uh, But John chapter 1 uh, verses four and five, this is talking about the coming of Jesus. It says, "In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What a beautiful fulfillment to that prophecy of Isaiah that this child is going to come, and the child is going to drive the darkness away so that we could live and walk in the light with God. So the imagery there is of light coming to the world, but also in verses, go back to Isaiah chapter 9 again. If we look at verses 3 through 5, what we see is this image of kind of restoration, basically that God is fixing the things that were broken. And some of these are political. In fact, many of them are. Look at verse 3. It says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. So basically this idea is God says... I'm going to actually give you back the property that was taken away. So really what happened when this nation of Assyria would come in, they would take away all the cities. They would take away all the land and say it belongs to us now. And God says, I'm going to multiply the nation. I'm going to give that back to you. And look, the people rejoice. They rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest. They're glad when they divide the spoil. Now when you think about this idea of the joy at harvest, we see this is a scene of celebration. And so what does that mean? And, and, and this is where I think I may have an edge on all of you since I grew up on a farm, anyone who didn't grow up on a farm. Uh, at the end of harvest every year, my dad would say, okay, we're done. We've brought in everything. Let's go celebrate. And so we would go uh, usually to Golden Corral, because there were six kids in my family, and he knew we'd, we would, uh, we'd eat them out of business. And, uh, and we would celebrate every year. It was, the, it was like the thing we looked forward to the most every year. And, uh, just the joy of having a completed harvest. And God says, when I restore you, that's the kind of joy you're going to have. In fact, you read through the Old Testament, they always celebrated harvest to celebrate what God had provided to say another season, another provision from God. And so God says, that's what it's going to be like when I restore you. When this happens, you're going to celebrate like it's harvest. Uh, and they, they're they all thinking, oh, thats that's the best celebration of all. But look at what else it says, verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, a few things in verses three and four, how many times does it say you did this, you did this, you did this. It doesn't say anything about we did this or I did that. God is, or Isaiah is talking about God doing it for them. God is the one who provides deliverance. And we see it's going to be through this child. But it says he broke the burden, so he sets them free politically from these people that were oppressing them. Again, reading through what the Assyrians said about what they wanted to do to people, they actually used these very words. They would say, we're going to put a yoke on your back and hook chains and ropes to it, and you're going to have to pull our yoke uh, until we kill you, basically. Um, And God says, I'm going to break that yoke and set you free. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus came to fulfill this in every possible way. And also, like I said, we're we're talking here in past tense as if, as if it's already happened. But guess what? It hasn't happened. Jesus doesn't come for another 600 years. And guess what? God's people still experience um, uh, political, political hardship. But it's certain because we see at the end of verse 4, God says, do you remember... As in the day of Midian, if you turn back to the book of Judges, it tells the story of Gideon, uh, where again, God's people were facing political darkness because of bad choices they made. And God said, I'm going to set you free from that darkness with this young kid named Gideon. And Gideon comes in and has one of the most amazing military victories that you can read about in the Bible And God says, I can use a young person, a small person, someone you would never expect to do something incredible to set you free. And so I love how the scripture does this. It points us back to what God has done in the past so that we can have certainty about what he will do in the future. Again, if God says, I'm going to do it, it's as good as it's already been done. We can talk about it in past tense as if it's happened. But here's the thing. Some of the things we're going to look at here in verse 5 actually haven't happened yet. We are still waiting for some of these things to happen. Verse 5, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, even the uniforms that soldiers have to wear, they're not going to need them anymore. We might as well burn them up as fuel because there's not going to be any more war. Isaiah does this a lot of times. He goes and says, look at this picture of what the world will be like when God fixes everything. No more war, no more injustice, no more fear, no more death, no more tears. You know, the book of Revelation actually quotes Isaiah a lot. There's so much hope found in the book of Isaiah, especially when he promises that this child will come, when God promises that this child will come. We get to read through verse 5, and and all these things are happening. This picture of deliverance is happening. Why? Because verse 6 Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And over the next few weeks, we're going to kind of unpack those four names and talk about who is this child, this child that's been born unto us. We're going to look at those names and see what it is that this child has come to do. But for today, just realize God is telling us what kind of a child he's sending. And it's not a normal child. In fact, a lot of people could have heard this prophecy and they said, Oh, a child's going to be born. That must mean our king is going to have a son. And that'll be the new king who's going to set us free from these Assyrians. But guess what? The description that God gives here is not just a human description. In fact, this child is not even called a king. Because in the earlier chapters of Isaiah, we see what the kings do. Uh, in other words, Isaiah is kind of making a point here. He's saying this is a royal person like a king, but the kings that we're familiar with here, they all messed up royally. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, this is not anything like that. This is a child who's going to be something completely different. In fact, some of these titles, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, can only refer to God himself. And the thought that God would be born as a child is incredible. And also that this is the solution to the problem. A child is a solution to the problem of darkness. It's an amazing thing to think about. Uh, one thing we see there in verse 7 is just the eternal reign that he will have of the increase. Of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then the guarantee, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So again, the question is when you hear this, God says, I'm going to send you a child. And you might say, a child? How's that going to work? But God's question in the book of Isaiah, God's question today is, who are you going to trust? Will you trust this child that I'm sending to you? Because that's the solution is a child. And what we see is this child, uh, the solution as a child uh, leads us to the invitation. The invitation is come to the light. This child is light as we find out. And so uh, I want you to flip back with me to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Again, remember I told you Isaiah repeats himself over and over again. He makes a promise, then he gives judgment. He says, if you don't shape up, this is what's going to happen. But here's the promise from God. If you follow me, this is what will happen. But I love the verses of Isaiah 2 verses 1 through 5. Really, I think, drives home what we're talking about with this child that's to be born in Isaiah 9. Uh, Verse two, it says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and shall say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And I think throughout Isaiah, throughout Scripture, what you see is an invitation to come into the light. And we do that by the same thing that Isaiah challenged the people of his time with, is who are you going to trust? I ask you that same question. Who are you going to trust? If you trust yourself, if you trust the politicians of our day, if you trust your wealth, your job, your family, guess what? You're stumbling around in darkness. And God says the one true thing that can set you free, the one thing that can give you eternal life forever, is this child the light that comes into the world. Come and walk in the light. Those verses in Isaiah 2, I love for a couple of reasons. One, it says all nations shall come to him. So all people from every language, every nation, every area of the earth shall come to know this child and they'll walk in his light. Brothers and sisters, that's why we do a missions tree. That's why we send out missionaries from this church because there are people beyond Covington who need to know the message of this child. All nations shall come and walk in the light. And then the challenge for us is, if you haven't begun to walk in the light, come to Jesus. Walk with Him. And if you haven't done that yet, talk to somebody here. Come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about what that looks like. Walk with Jesus. Trust Him alone. And if you already have done that, then continue to walk in the light. 1 John 1.7 says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light... We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Walk in the light. This morning, I would ask you on this second Sunday of Advent. Are you experiencing darkness or difficulty or hopelessness in any area of your life? Well, I have good news for you this morning. There is a solution. Unto us, a child is born and he gives us hope. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to look at your word. God, we thank you for the hope that we receive through your son, Jesus Christ. And God, we praise you for his birth. We praise you for the chance to celebrate it at this time of year. And God, I pray that uh, we would trust in you alone, not in ourselves or other things. God, we praise you for your son. Thank you for what he did on our behalf. In your name we pray. Amen.